Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. It was early morning as the families eagerly approached the train in Mississippi. All were a bit fatigued from celebrating at the going away party the previous evening. Family, friends, and community buzzed about them to ask questions like, would they write letters to tell all about their new adventures? And would they say hello to their distant relatives in Indian territory? At the bustling train station, one mama reached for her three-year-old girl's hand to help lift her onto the box train her pudgy little toddler fingers grasping tight as she boarded the steel box on wheels for the very first time. It was a new life for these select few Mississippi Choctaw who would join the descendants of their ancestors that had traveled a difficult road to Indian territory over 70 years prior on what would someday be known as the Trail of Tears. They assumed the reunion would be a celebration and that they would learn from these Choctaw pioneers how to work the red dirt of this land and where they should send their children to school. The morning sun's golden rays beamed through the windows of the train like an echo that it was indeed a new day for these families riding off to their new start. The little girl looked up at her Ishki, her mama, squinting to avoid the sun's glare as she asked in her Choctaw tongue, are we leaving home? Her mother looked into her daughter's inquisitive brown eyes and answered, Yes, we're leaving to start a new home, and everything's going to be wonderful. But the future was not as hopeful as her mother had thought. This new start would be more like something from a nightmare. And yet for some, the Choctaw spirit would find a way to live on after this train of tears, just as it had for their ancestors years before on the Trail of Tears. It's a story that most have never heard. A second removal of the Choctaw in 1903 from their homelands in Mississippi to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. And here today to talk about this journey and nearly forgotten scandal is my guest, Deanna Bird. Deanna, this conversation has been a long time coming. Yakuki for sharing about this fascinating and yet almost unknown story that you're bringing to light. Thanks for having me. And, you know, it's always fun to have a fellow Choctaw on the show. <laughs> um, I'll share a bit about your background, although I know it only covers a bit of what you do. Your work is so crucial and, frankly, very interesting, too. So here goes. Deanna Bird is a registered professional archaeologist and completed her education at the University of Oklahoma and Illinois State University. She serves as the NAGPRA liaison coordinator for her tribe, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. By the way, NAGPRA stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and we'll hear more about that later. 
She is currently working with several institutions across the United States for the respectful repatriation of Chata ancestors as part of a comprehensive nationwide search, the No Stone Turn, the No Stone Unturned Project. Deanna values her time by learning new Chata cuisine dishes, beading, quilting, restoring her historic home, and spending time with her three children and new son-in-law. And shout out to all of them. I'd say you stay fairly busy. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> uh, and by the way, the other day when we were talking, I loved how your kids are learning from what you're doing. What a gift to give them. And more about that later as well. So let's talk about the main project you're doing with NAGPRA. The ironic thing is I originally started following your research when I was searching for information on the journey of my Choctaw ancestors and our Choctaw people. And I came across what was a different piece of info than I had ever seen before. So many of the Choctaw had been removed from Mississippi to Indian territory starting in the early 1800s. But here was the story of a removal many years later in 1903. So today you work with historic preservation and a team of researchers to document and preserve our Choctaw history. So without further ado, let's go back to the very beginning of your research on this topic. What year did you come across this story and how did you come across it? Well, gosh, it was kind of just one of those water cooler talks at work. <laughs> and I had started with the tribe in 2015 as an intern, a summer intern. And we were talking in our office and, and learning, you know, that there was a difference on our CDIB cards. Um, some would say Choctaw and some would say Mississippi Choctaw. And I just thought that there was just kind of a, a naming difference. So we're all from Mississippi. So maybe there was just a naming difference between Mississippi Choctaw and Choctaw. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that there was a completely different story um, and a reason for Mississippi Choctaw being on the CDIB. Following the Indian Removal Act, Choctaw chiefs were forced to sign the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek in 1830. This treaty not only ceded the last remaining Choctaw homelands in Mississippi, but also led to the removal of over 20,000 Choctaw people to Indian Territory through a series of orchestrated removals from 1830 to 1855. And that's where the extent of most folks' knowledge of the removal of the Choctaw ends, but not so. In 1902, a storm was a Bruin. So tell us more about that. Yes. So for Choctaw people, our removal history, you know, begins with the Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty in 1830. Um, and then we see this removal uh, happen over the series of decades, all the way up until right around 1887 is the General Allotment Act or the Dawes Act was passed. And what this meant is that um, the everybody who wanted to get land and citizenship into the Choctaw Nation here in Oklahoma, Indian Territory at the time, they needed to be here in Indian Territory. Mm. And so when 1887 rolled around, they started establishing um, kind of deadlines and they started pushing for this. So in 1893, you see a special commission that is formed of the five civilized tribes, they go down, um, the Indian agents look in Mississippi, they try to meet with as many people as they can, and they try to kind of basically do a head count, right? Mm -hmm. And they determine that there's about 2,000 Mississippi Choctaw in Mississippi, 
Now this is problematic, this number is, because they weren't able to go into every community. Um, they kind of went to a few different hubs and that was it. And so that's where their count kind of ended. Um, so about the DAWs rules, really what it proposed is that anybody who was Mississippi Choctaw could come up um, and qualify for tribal lands and designated quantities. And what this meant is that um, for a family head, house, head of household, they would get 160 acres. If you were a single person who was 18 years and you didn't have a family, then you could have 80 acres. And this also qualified for if you were an orphan and you didn't have parents and then your family could also come to Indian Territory and receive 80 acres of your own land to mm. farm. And then a single person um, under the age of 18, um, you know, this would be 40 acres. So this could be a child. So if you were a family, um, you could each, you know, the head of the family would get 160 acres and then say maybe the um, children would get 40 each. So you stood to get quite a bit of land in this um, Dawes Act kind of uh, scenario, but it required you to be in Indian Territory by March 5th. 1907, which was the closing of the Dawes rules. They weren't going to allow anybody else to be enrolled. So there's the Dawes Act itself. And then explain what the rules are to our listeners. So the rules were essentially just to document um, who was being added to uh, the allotments. And so those Mississippi Choctaw that were coming up, um, the those, those Choctaw that were here, um, the Allotment Act would basically try to break up the way of life that we um, had basically had in our community for thousands of years. We were a communal society. We had communal land. We had communal gardens. We had, um, you know, fields that were communal. And then we also had, you know, personal gardens that were around our homes, but we were very much a community. And so if somebody was in need, we would um, we would give to them, um, you know, with with no questions asked. We would we would be there for them, and so part of that when we came to Indian Territory after removal, one of the things that we did is we did something called land rotation or or land management strategies, and one of those was letting the land heal. So we didn't plant on that land all the time. Um, we would um, reserve that time or we would rotate crops in and out. We would do prescribed burning. We would, we would let the land manage itself. So with the Dawes rules, what they wanted to do for allotment is they wanted to allot, this is your land. This is it. This is what you farm. You put a fence around it. This is how you maintain it. And kind of trying to westernize um, you know, Choctaw families and Choctaw communities in a way that was more westernized. Um, and through this allotment, um, essentially the Dawes Act was to break up community living and work towards more of an individual lifestyle. Um, you know, as we know, you know, as um, colonizers came in, it was very much an individualistic uh, mentality. And so they would farm their land and, and make their living and, um, you know, they would be prosperous. And so they saw the way that we managed our land in conflict with that. And the Dawes Act was a way to make sure that individuals um, were successful in their mind. And so if you had your own land, you farmed your own land, then you would be able to, to be successful um, in that right. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yep. You got it. So there was this 
these removals that were going on between 1830 to 1855. How did we get that later removal starting in 1902 and 1903? Yeah, so when the um, when the General Allotment Act was issued, the Dawes Act in 1887, what they were finding is that one, there was two things that they were that the United States government was finding. The federal government was finding that a lot of Choctaw, Mississippi Choctaw, were very apprehensive about coming up to Indian territory and participating in another removal. Um, they didn't want to leave their homes, even though a lot of them were experiencing um, racism or hardship um, in Mississippi. They didn't want to come to Indian territory. They were apprehensive about the news, about the act, about allotment. Um, you know, remembering what happened in the 1830s and then all the way up in subsequent decades, you know, they were naturally apprehensive. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that they found that there was land speculators who, you know, served to gain from this experience. And so if they could convince Mississippi Choctaws to come up to Indian territory, they would pay for them. They would um, help them get up to Indian territory safely. A lot of times they would go in and they would have relationships with them already, um, but it was a scam. They were trying to take care of, uh, they were trying to take advantage of Mississippi Choctaw by getting some sort of lien on their land. So the federal government realized in part by this, that they needed to allocate money um, to orchestrate and organize another re federal removal, a last removal to Atoka in 1903. So this was sponsored by the U.S. federal government um, in part to support the Mississippi Choctaw and avoid some of these scams so they could actually get their land when they mm -hmm. went to Indian territory. And so that was set for August um, of 1903. And listeners, remember the town name Atoka because it will come up in just a second. So there's all of these things that the Choctaw are being offered, the 160 acres or less. Um, they had to get themselves to Indian territory. There's this Dawes Commission that needs to do a count of all the Choctaws that are in the areas, but obviously this is not a thorough account and even more messy, like you were saying, is the fact that lurking in the shadows are some sons of again who are at the ready to exploit this terrible situation, which again is no surprise there to any of us as history has shown this to happen over and over. So this particular story we're going to talk about today, how did you originally start researching? You mentioned the seeing the Mississippi Choctaw and the CBID cards and all that. What was the red flag that made you start worrying about these Mississippi Choctaw that were coming over later? Wow. So um, I think, you know, looking back for me, what was the, the red flag was that, you know, you start combing through just as you do any kind of research, you start combing through all of the material you can get your hands on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, were looking through all of the trail of tears um, information and, and documentation, people that had researched uh, records, military records um, and wrote about them and, and great authors. And what I was noticing is that you you hear about the 1830 uh, removals, and some even talk about the subsequent decades of removals, and it, it was a flux, right? There was mm -hmm. people coming to Indian Territory, but then there was also families going back and getting family members and bringing them back. And so, you know, that's discussed in great detail. There's whole, um, you know, volumes written on this period of time. Then you would have like maybe two or three pages of the later removal to 1903 to Atoka, this last mm -hmm. federal push to get the Mississippi Choctaw to um, participate 
before the closing of the Doswells. And so you have this, um, this account of them getting on the train, um, arriving in Atoka just after midnight, you know, there was rain. Um, you, I you know, learned a little bit about how that originally they were supposed to pick their own allotment land, but because they thought um, the, the facilitators, um, the federal Indian agents that were there thought that perhaps this was gonna take too much time. Uh, they went out and picked the land for the Mississippi Choctaw that were arriving on the train. And so when they took them out there on covered wagon and gave them the tools to build their cabin, the idea was that they were supposed to bring them back within the week so somebody else could use them. And what they found is that, you know, these Mississippi Choctaw families were coming straight back to the Atoka encampment because there was no water. Um, sometimes they were run off by Oklahoma Choctaw that had been established in that area for a very long time. Um, like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, kind of thing. And so, you know, in the encampment, there was a lot of sickness there. And so what they decided to do was um, start um, settling these Mississippi Choctaw families further south into Blue, Durant, um, Bochito, Bennington, and those kinds of areas. And that proved to be a little bit successful because there was water sources, there was um, a little bit more of arable land. So those were, you know, a few pages. And then there'd be maybe one or two sentences about a removal to Ardmore in 1902, and there wouldn't be anything else. Mm -hmm. And so, so that was, yeah. And so that was a little, a little, you know, perplexing. I was like, what is going on here? And I remember, you know, growing up and at some of the, you know, holiday dinners or, you know, hearing from my grandmother or my mom, and they would talk about our family came on the trail of tears, which I think most people have um, some sort of narrative um, that they have that they talk about, except ours was like, yeah, they came on the train. And I was like, what, what was that? <laughs> what was that about the train? Right, right. Yeah. And so I always, you know, kind of put that two and two together. My family's from Ardmore. Um, and we came on the train. And so, you know, those two or three lines in these volumes just kind of really started that pursuit of understanding the story and wanting to learn more. And so we just really dove into the documents at that point. And one of the places I started was the newspapers. And the newspapers, um, the Arborite, the Daily Arborite, um, for December 1902, started talking about that um, Mississippi Choctaws were boarding trains. There was an attorney. He was bringing them to the Whittington Hotel um, that they had arrived there. And so that's what kind of started the journey of trying to piece that story together and follow those clues. Absolutely. In August of 1903, our story begins. Some of the Mississippi Choctaw decided to move to Indian Territory in hopes of new land and a new start, starting with a train ride from Meridian, Mississippi. So do you know much about the train ride itself? How many days did it take? What was their route? And then what was their final destination? Yeah, so those that came to Atoka, they actually um, came through Louisiana and then they stopped just outside of Fort Worth and then they made their turn north to come up to, um, to go up to Atoka through there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then something interesting about this story is how it actually intertwines with your own ancestral story. So tell us about your own family who actually came over from Mississippi on this later removal. Yeah, so what was interesting when I was doing the research and reading about the citizenship papers and the interviews and then uncovering the story in Ardmore was that 
uh, this, you know, it was a very common story for those that had signed contracts and had been um, victims of scandals and scams for, for liens on their land. Um, my family were living in Mississippi at the time and had made arrangements with a, mer a merchant. So they probably, you know, had bartered with the mercantile and um, had developed a relationship. And um, the person who was named Uncle Billy um, sponsored them to have um, this contract to come up. And um, what's interesting about their story is that they rode the same train in 1903 that August as the rest of the Mississippi Choctaw. So they, it, they stayed on the train. They didn't get off in Atoka. Um, they actually went on and further north to McAllister, Oklahoma and got off there. And there they were met by the attorney and um, basically the person who had made the contract with them accompanied them to McAllister to meet with the attorney. And they got their allotments outside of Marietta, which is um, just a little bit further south than Ardmore and um, eventually intermingled and intermarried into the Durwood community that's there. Okay, interesting. And so it sounds like your family actually had a decent experience. They got what they were promised, right? Well, actually, so there was some sort of lean situation. Um, we're not exactly sure um, what that was in terms of what the, uh, the arrangements were, but we you know, and, and how they panned out if they were, um, had to, to do that. With my family, they were able to make it uh, to McAllister and get their allotment in Marietta. However, there was indication that they had also signed a contract for uh, half of their land to be on lien. So the, the understanding was, is that over the next five years, anything that they made on their land, whether that was farming, um, any profits that they would have to turn over um, in exchange for, you know, basically paying rent on that land. Oh. And that's not the way that it was designed. It was designed, you know, if you were coming and you were signing up for the Dawes rules, that allotment was to be given to you free of charge. And so the land speculators were taking full advantage of this um, and helping them pick out the perfect place to settle. Okay. Something that really just gets to me too, is that your relatives actually missed being part of an atrocity that was about to happen. I wonder if they knew that. Um, okay, back to the others that boarded the train and got off in Atoka, Oklahoma. So they didn't go on to McAllister as your family did. And even then, it sounds like your family still had some frustrations with the way this lean thing went. But do you know how many Mississippi Choctaw exited the train that day, that the ones that got off in Atoka? You know, we really don't. We know that there was about, you know, 2000 that the commission went down and identified after the Dawes Act was passed, but we don't know how many came through Atoka. Unfortunately, there's not many records. Um, it would take a lot of hunting and, and kind of working with families to be, be able to identify that. However, we do know that the majority of Mississippi Choctaw families did get off in Atoka. Okay, interesting. And, and so far, it sounds like things are moving forward. They're on the train, they're headed to their new Indian territory, but there's a very dark side to the story. Tell us what really happened once they stepped off that train. Yeah, so the ones in Atoka, they, you know, as we had, you know, just discussed, you know, they naturally had things that they had to endure. Um, they had to, you know, basically start all over. And so they had gotten their allotments and they 
um, use the tools that were given. They had um, provisions that were given to them. And so they were able to start a new life here in Indian Territory. And some of that was, you know, dealing with the hardship of, of those that were already here and established. However, they were able to build communities and churches and, and um, were able to kind of etch out here among the Choctaw that were already here and um, etch out relationships and, and rekindle relationships with the Choctaw that were already here. Dark side to this story happened seven months prior. So in anticipation for the opening of the Dawes Rolls in Indian Territory, an attorney convinced several Mississippi Choctaw families to sign contracts that they couldn't read. Um, he went down because he spoke Choctaw. His mom, he claimed his mother was Choctaw. It was later found out that she was not Choctaw. Ugh. However, because he was fluent in Choctaw, he was able to go into remote areas and visit with families and convince them to sign contracts like these lean um, contracts where they would give up a portion of their land for safe passage to Indian Territory. And through these contracts, um, it laid out him as the sole beneficiary, um, almost like a will. Oh. And we have evidence, we have found a few wills where even if the family didn't make it, he would stand to get the land. Um, Disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that rabbit hole just continues to get worse and worse. And the thing with him is that he actually, in 1887, when the Dawes Act was um, enacted, he started buying up property in and around Ardmore um, so that he could take these individuals to these plots of land because that was one of the requirements for allotment is that you had to go and actually look at the land in order for that land to be deemed yours. So he would take them oftentimes to the very same track of land that he owned. And then, you know, of course, they went in to the um, land office and the land, you know, plot, they didn't know that that wasn't the, the one that they were being given. And so they would um, turn over that allotment paperwork to the attorney and oftentimes he would leave them there. And so they didn't speak English. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know where this land was and they had no way of getting back. He would just leave them sitting he there at the land office. Yeah. Oh my God. So and so this was, you know, prior to, um, or this was, I'll start over. Um, and so this was after them enduring a full winter in the Love Building. And so at first he would brought a few Mississippi Choctaw to the Whittington Hotel there in downtown Ardmore. And they were interviewed by a reporter. Um, and one of the first people that they spoke to was by a, a gentleman named Favre. And um, he spoke English and was able to interpret to the Choctaw that were there and, and tell a little bit about their journey. Um, it was around Christmas time. And so they talked a little bit about these parties that they had had and a nice Christmas dinner from the attorney and his um, partners down in Mississippi, sent, giving them a good send off from the, from the families and the towns. And we have newspaper clippings attesting to these parties to send them on their journey. Then about a week later, we start reading in the newspaper that um, more and more Mississippi Choctaw are coming. And so the numbers are increasing. Um, it's not just, you know, 10 or 15, we're talking 100 this mm -hmm. week and maybe 500 the next week. And so um, we know that the attorney had a hand in bringing several hundred um, Mississippi Choctaw. And 
they weren't staying at the Whittington Hotel. So he, it was not a building that he owned. Um, I think it was one of his colleagues and it was down to the east of the Main Street um, railroad tracks. And so the Love Building was a, a walk-up, so it had lodging on the top and down on the, the first floor was like a business. And it was up on that top, uh, second story, that the lodging was there. And at one time we know that there was at least 250 Mississippi Choctaw who stayed in lodging up there. Um, wow. And seeing the rooms, you know, barely maybe five could fit in a room. And so um, we know that the, the conditions were very cramped. Um, there was not a lot of ventilation. There wasn't a lot of sanitation. Um, there wasn't adequate nutrition or food given to them. And um, many of the Mississippi Choctaw who were there got very, very sick. Oh, so sad. I mean, you are on this journey thinking that you're going to an interesting life where you can start over and you're going to be around some of your um, relatives, even if they're distant relatives that had come over prior uh, via their ancestors. So you'll notice Deanna doesn't say the name of the lawyer out of respect for those descendants of his still living, which I can also certainly respect. There are some mind-blowing things this attorney put these people through that I just can't believe he got away with. And then on the other hand, I can't believe it. For one, Native Americans had never been treated well up to this point. And secondly, it was the Wild West. There was still chaos and word didn't always get around about what was going on and until evildoers had gotten away with a lot of their evil doings. And so this shady attorney has to find a place to put these new arrivals. He puts them in the love building in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And there's just, you know, so many dark secrets there that are, are just so sad for these people who have innocently come here looking for that new life. Um, can you describe the Love Building, where it sat in Ardmore and the overall area for us? Yeah, so the Love Building sits on the east side of the tracks, and it was typically known for, like, the others. So either immigrants or people of color um, were, that was kind of their side of the tracks. So it wasn't surprising for me to learn that that was the location of the Love Building. I think what was surprising for me is that the reason that they got moved out of the Love Building wasn't necessarily the number one concern with their health. The number one most concern is that there was too many Mississippi Choctaw in that area. Oh. Um, and oh. so to me, I think that was the most sad kind of discovery of learning that um, people knew what was going on and there were reports of this and there was reports in the newspaper and people knew of what was going on. And for our listeners, where is Ardmore, Oklahoma? Ardmore, Oklahoma is in southeastern Oklahoma. It's in Chickasaw Nation. Um, it is a southernmost city just before you hit kind of the Red the Red River before crossing into Texas. Okay. Okay, so that kind of gives us a an idea of where we are in the now state of Oklahoma. So these Choctaw, Mississippi, again, had traveled so far. They left some of their families behind. They trusted this attorney. They got placed into this love building. And it sounds like from what you're saying, the conditions weren't ideal. You know, during the winter, it was super cold. They were getting sick. And we'll talk about um, Dr. Hardy in just a second. But I've always wondered, were there truly, you know, we talk about them being imprisoned there in the love building. Were there actually locks on the door or how did they keep them in there or in the general area of Ardmore? Yeah, so I think that's always been a question for us as well. And, and while there's no evidence that the doors were locked per se, like padlocked, 
I think that what's really important to understand about this story is that there is so much participation and the connections in the community went really, really deep with this attorney. And so he had worked out an arrangement with law enforcement that if any of the Mississippi Choctaw had left, that they would be brought back to the Love Building. Um, so, you know, if they tried to run or if they tried to, to to hop a train, you know, there was always the eyes watching to bring them back to the Love Building. Gosh. Well, and that explains, too, why the townspeople would see them and complain, oh, we have so many more new Choctaws here. Why is this happening? And mm-hmm. so and, and as far as the illnesses go, there was a doctor in Ardmore named Dr. Hardy. Tell us more about him. Yeah, so Dr. Hardy was a very prominent doctor um, in Ardmore in the early 1900s. He even had, you know, the first hospital there. He was um, very proficient. He was a young doctor and stayed there for the, the majority of his career. He even ever had a air ambulance at one time. And wow, uh, yeah. So his, you know, he stayed in that area for a really long time. And one of the things that we learn is that he had an office that was across the street from the love building. And we don't know exactly the location. We don't know if it was across the tracks, if it was directly across from the love building, but he did go and check on um, the Mississippi Choctaw there and reported that their conditions were um, deplorable. It makes you wonder too, because he was treating them. Somebody had to have been fitting that bill. So it makes me wonder, you know, do you think he was treating them at no cost or was the attorney paying for that treatment? What do you think? I really think that the attorney was, I think that the attorney um, was, was pretty calculated and was keeping track. Um, we have evidence that he kept a, um, a tab on each of the um, families that arrived from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. And I mean, keeping them alive, not healthy, I guess is one thing, but at the same time, there were those who were passing away. And in fact, you talked to me earlier about how you had seen some red flags as you were researching this story. And one of those red flags had to do with some obituaries, right? Yes. So what I started discovering is, you know, you have this period of influx of um, a lot of Mississippi Choctaw families in December. And then you see with Amy Smith, you know, she was a Mississippi Choctaw Indian woman. Um, They noted that she was 80 years old and she died of consumption in the Love Building and was buried in the south part of Ardmore Cemetery. Um, And then there were subsequent um, uh, newspaper articles that were obituaries and there was three or four more. And then by the mid-January, kind of the last week of January, they just all dry up. There's nothing more um, Mm. to be known about the Mississippi Choctaw. Um, So I tried to look at other newspapers. I tried to see um, what was going on. Had they all been moved um, onto their allotments? Um, But it just went cold. And I mean, you spurred me last time we were talking into wanting to go into those newspapers. I I have a subscription to newspapers.com and I recommend it for anyone who is trying to research their own family. So how many Choctaws do you think actually passed away while they were in the Love Building? Do you have any idea? No, I I really don't think that we're going to have an accurate depiction of the loss of Mississippi Choctaw families. Um, I just don't think there was any records that were there. 
Um, the obituaries, you know, I know of a few others. There was Susan Jackson, who was 35 years old. Um, she died of pneumonia as well. Um, and it sounds like that there were every three to four days that there was another burial um, reported in the southeastern part of the, the cemetery. Wow. And, and speaking of those burial places, you did a GPR study behind the building, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was another red flag. We've talked a little bit about those. That was a red flag for me as an archaeologist, you know, researching this and understanding that there were so many that were reported coming um, to this area to stay in the Love Building. And then there's only three or four uh, obituaries. My concern was is that behind the building itself was a huge wagon yard. You can see that on the old Sanborn fire insurance maps and there's there's oral history of that's where it was and there's often you know pictures in the archives and the the Ardmore library that have that wagon yard behind there um, depicted on old maps. And um, so we wanted to do a GPR study to, to see if the ground printing radar would be able to locate any anomalies that would give us concern that there might be burials back there. Um, because it was so um, secluded back there, um, it was kind of a possibility that maybe this gentleman, instead of burying them or, or reporting um, the deaths, would have gone ahead and, and, and buried them behind there. But we didn't find anything. Hmm. Yeah, is it kind of like bittersweet in a way you're like, oh, I'm kind of glad they weren't just dumped, for better lack of word. Um, at the same time, you're trying to find them so that you can honor them. So, and then uh, the Ardmore Cemetery, we talked about the, the southern part of the cemetery there, and you actually have someone close to you buried there as well, right? Yes, I, so I actually have three. I have my mom and then my grandparents have passed, both her parents, and so they're in the, 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 the southeastern port portion of the cemetery, and um, you know, because I had read the articles and I, I had learned about the southern portion of the cemetery, I, I decided to go and take a look and follow the train tracks. And there along the train tracks in the older portion of the cemetery, you have uh, markers that drops the 1900s or 1902, 1903 timeframe, but you also have these um, impressions there where you can tell kind of the outline um, that something was um, you know, the earth was disturbed there. And so there could be something or an individual potentially buried there, but there's no markers there. Wow. So sad. Uh, and so that, you know, you talked about that railroad track is nearby. I want to keep that in mind because there's reason for that. Um, and then you mentioned to me one time about why it's convenient that the railroad tracks were right there near the cemetery. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of us, you know, don't really, really consider the train as being a, a really integral part of our city. Um, you know, we, we kind of find that inconvenience as we're stopped and we're waiting for them to, you know, we need to get somewhere. But really, trains were an integral part of early, um, you know, this 1900 time frame, and especially in Ardmore. And so the train did go out past the southern portion of the cemetery. So it would have been very convenient to drive up on the track and transport the individuals to that location for reburial. Um, the train was actually used to transport Mississippi Choctaw from the Love Building into these satellite communities out in Durwood, um, Marietta, Medill, and that train ran all the way through there. So tell us the story of the person who was interviewing individuals at the Whittington Hotel and what those individuals said. 
So they were being interviewed when they first came in. They interviewed the first group of Mississippi Choctaw that arrived um, in Mississippi. Um, and it would have been on December 5th, 1902. Um, and the individual from the Daily Admirite interviewed Seymour Favre. Um, and he informed the news um, reporter that there was, um, most of them were afraid to come out to Indian territory. Um, he talked about that their group consisted of men, women, and children. Um, and uh, he told the interpreter that there was a lot more Mississippi Choctaw would come out in about a week to 10 days. Okay. Wow. So originally, it took a while for the attorney to get the Choctaws in Mississippi to trust him. He had made a deal with certain provisions. And as mentioned, the Choctaws were supposed to receive 160 acres of land in Indian Territory. That's pretty compelling. So tell us how those land deals were supposed to work. Well, the land deals that he had had them sign contracts for were uh, much like my family's experience, the contract that they had signed, that for the land was under lien for up to five years. So the idea was that they would get their acreage of land, they would just start farming. Then when it went for a profit, whatever they sold on that land, then um, the land speculator would get a cut of that. He would get 50% of that. And then over five years, they could buy back their land um, in increments until they paid it off. And so that was kind of the arrangement. He promised them, you know, cabins, um, fully built cabins. He um, promised them wagons. He promised them provisions. He promised them the moon. He promised them everything that they would needed to start their new life in Indian Territory. And he wasn't just doing this to the Choctaw. He was also defrauding others too, right? Yes. So he started buying up land in the late, in the late 1890s in Ardmore. He had financial backers. Some were politicians, very prominent politicians in the state of Oklahoma, um, and also financial backers from local areas in Texas and around the area and also in Mississippi. And then what happened next? So the Ardmore residents started kind of complaining that there were so, more, so many Choctaw in the area. Of course, we learned that Dr. Hardy has set up part of the Love Building as a hospital, a makeshift hospital, because there were so many Choctaw getting sick. So the idea was to bring these Mississippi Choctaw families out into satellite communities using the rail system. And so these families ended up in Durwood, in um, Marietta, Medill, out in the surrounding areas um, around Ardmore. And, you know, essentially would live in tents or small one-room cabins that were built for them. Um, and so this is where they ended up until they got their allotments. So was there any hope for the Choctaw in all of this? Yes. So the next article that I was able to find, uh, the next article that I was able to find was that someone, we later learned that this is an attorney out of the Five Civilized Tribe Commission, had alerted um, them to a situation that was going on in Ardmore. And they sent an Indian agent, his name was Horace Day, and he went and talked to the people in and around Ardmore. And he alerted the commission that um, this is where it gets a little bit gray. We know that he talked to several Mississippi Choctaw families and learned about their conditions, their living conditions. We learned a little bit about what the attorney had promised them. And so, but what ha happens after between the time he turns his report in and the next kind of federal report 
is really gray. We don't know how it happened, but we know that the Mississippi Choctaw got their lands without their liens in the spring. And we know that the attorney was actually um, disbarred. Oh, really? Finally, some justice. Yes. Thankfully. And thanks to Horace Day. For sure. Yes. Yes. So where did the survivors end up living after all of this? Many of the Mississippi Choctaw who got their allotments there in Chickasaw Territory, that's where they lived. And they raised their families there um, outside of the Choctaw Nation. I think the most heinous thing that we were able to discover um, about this whole scheme and how this differed from other land speculators that were targeting Mississippi Choctaw is that this attorney and his colleagues actually planned to sell these Mississippi Choctaw into slavery um, to individuals on farms in and around Ardmore for $100. And oh we have evidence, yeah, we have evidence that he sold at least 10 to Mississippi Choctaw um, up in Purcell, and eight of those were to a judge. Wow. Hadn't slavery been abolished by then? Seriously. Yeah, yeah, 13th Amendment. <laughs> My God, and to a judge, a judge who is supposed to uphold the law. Yeah, and that really tells you how deep that rabbit hole went in terms of corruption and participation, yeah. Seriously, though, how did you track down all of this information? Because people like myself who do research, we want to know. I think the smoking gun here, so to speak, was um, finding that the attorney, because he kept tabs on all of the expenses he incurred for the Mississippi Choctaw, whenever the um, Indian Five Civilized Tribes Commission came forth and made the agreements void, the attorney turned around and sued everybody that he had brought to Indian Territory for all of his expenses. Are you kidding so me? No, he did. <laughs> I know. What an it, idiot. I know. Oh. It was, yeah, of course it was thrown out. They completely denied it. But that was, um, you know, when you talk about bittersweet, that was a bittersweet moment because while I can't imagine those in the courtroom having to hear the ridiculousness of this um, and the right. trauma that it must have caused those oh. individuals to have to face that, face go come to court and face those charges, um, it did give us a record into the scandal. And so we can now point to this list and tribal members are able to call in, um, work with our office to see if their family members, their ancestors are on this list. And I can tell you that it's given a lot of families that missing piece that they were looking for, um, but they didn't quite know how they got to Indian territory. I'm so glad you found that, that list. And how much do we hate this attorney? I mean, what kind of person was this person at the time? You know, I, I have a lot of theories and, you know, somebody asked me one time, they were like, um, they brought to my attention another aspect of the story and they had, they're an independent researcher and they talked about his family and they talked a little bit about, you know, his background and some motivations that he might've had, you know, he mm -hmm. might've had anger towards Mississippi Choctaws for his mom being denied citizenship. There might've been all kinds of different things and, you know, I had to finally tell this individual and a couple people have asked, you know, I think for me that that rabbit hole just, I couldn't go down it anymore. You know, yeah, I found yeah. myself just really so heartbroken um, at hearing what they endured, hearing what happened. Um, 
that it wasn't important for me to find out any more details about him and his life. I just wanted to concentrate on memorializing what happened um, and commemorating their journey and their survival and those that have lived on through that experience. Oh, absolutely. Very, that's very well said because the, the point of this was to also share their story, what they went through and, and have a chance to honor them as well. So I mentioned that along the way, you've had your own story intertwined into this as well. Your great, great grandmother, who did she marry? So my great, great grandmother, Mary Saki, ended up marrying um, Forrest Favre, which was Seymour Favre's son. So they would have been probably around the same age um, when the love building was happening, except our family got their allotments in Marietta um, while the Farves were just outside of Ardmore where their allotments were. And so my um, great, great grandmother ended up marrying Forrest later in life. And so it was interesting how um, if you talk to uh, Mississippi Choctaw and in from that area that have uh, are from Ardmore, um, there's very much um, an intertwining of families and intermarriage and um, going to church together, going to singings together. And so it was a very small, tight-knit community there. Oh, absolutely. And I think you provided a picture of Mary, correct? Yes. Yeah. So and listeners, I can't wait to show you her. Yeah. It's just amazing. I, I just find it so fascinating that this intertwines with your own story and that your family went on to McAllister and had a very, still a different story. Um, so, but I am curious, tell us about the challenges of our Mississippi Choctaw, what they faced after that terrifying ordeal, but about what is also happening now. Yes, so after their arrival and after they were able to get their allotments, you know, really they became a really tight-knit community. Um, they were outside the Choctaw Nation, they were in the Chickasaw country, um, and so, you know, they're, while they were accepted and embraced by those around them and, and in Ardmore and, and, and Chickasaw country, it was, it was very much, you know, a kind of a bittersweet environment because mm -hmm. they were rebuilding their lives. Um, however, you know, it was their intention to be with the rest of the Choctaw community over in the Choctaw Nation. I think there was a feeling perhaps of isolation, not to getting to be with their Choctaw people um, that they had intended to in Indian territory. Um, I imagine that there was some disappointment there. Um, they were removed, but they weren't with Choctaw people. They were with, um, you know, friends and family that uh, I'm sure they probably knew many Chickasaw um, that were over in Chickasaw country. Um, however, they, they had intended to be over in Choctaw Nation. Right, right. So they were kind of misplaced in this other area that, than what they expected. Yes. Yeah. But I think that through this experience and, and being able to tell the story, to be able to, to honor um, these ancestors that have come on this journey, I think that there's some healing that's done there. Um, the Ardmore Choctaw, you know, now have that little missing piece if they were missing it to be able to understand how their families got there. And we can also commemorate um, these communities for the contributions that they gave to Choctaw culture. Um, because they came up later, they had, you know, songs, they had dances, they had the diamonds on our clothes, they had traditional beadwork and songs, ceremony that they brought with them that they were able to contribute to the larger Choctaw culture. And, and that's so interesting to me because you had told me before that when that the first removals happened, they 
the Choctaws in Indian Territory, some of them had started to um, shift into the culture of the area, kind of lose a little bit of their Mississippi Choctaw flair and culture and all of that. And yet with these new Choctaw coming over from Mississippi, and yet with a Mississippi Choctaw coming over, they did bring back some of that real traditional culture and and socialization, right? Yes. So you think about the Trail of Tears and that whole removal period, you know, the history there of the, the upheaval um, of being, you know, run out of our communities, um, you know, what made it particularly um, a horrible experience is that we were not um, removed by family. We were not removed by communities. So it was very haphazardly done. And so through that, we lost our clan system, our ICSAs, and a lot of traditional knowledge was lost. And so while we maintained a lot of that as we got through the Indian Territory, there were some gaps in that knowledge. Um, those Mississippi Choctaw who came later in 1902, 1903 were able to contribute um, and fill in those holes um, of some of those that knowledge that had never been um, put to sleep. And I, I realized, too, that something that must have been frustrating for these Mississippi Choctaw that came over was they didn't get the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma benefits, correct? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think that was a little sore spot. Um, I can imagine um, that for Choctaw people that are not able to, to receive benefits, um, that, that that leaves a sore spot. However, I think that um, the tribe has done a great job in in recent years of extending that past the borders of the reservation. Um, and so, you know, how far that extends, I, I can't can't speak to, but I know that, you know, it's, it's extremely isolating. I know that I heard um, stories when I was growing up about, um, you know, stay over there, stay on, stay on the reservation side, you know, because um, they wanted me to be a part of the community. They wanted me to be a part of where everyone was, you know, kind of centralized. Mm, makes sense. And then, so... So today, I didn't want to say the make sense. Um, <clears throat> so today, are those Mississippi Choctaw that came over, do you think that they're still living in the Ardmore area? I think a lot of them do. Yeah, I, I know that um, there's several co-workers that still call Ardmore and Durwood and surrounding communities home. Um, I think that, um, you know, that's where their original allotment land is. That's where they grew up. And um, you know, it's it's nice to be able to see that um, that the story has come to light in a way that celebrates um, their journey. Absolutely. And then, you know, through the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma Historic Preservation Department, you and Ryan Spring and Mark Williams, also guests of Native Chalk Talk, and others have, you've all done just such an incredible job making these stories come to life. Tell us more. Yes, so it was probably about um, maybe three or four years ago, and Mark Williams, which is an exceptional Indigenous filmmaker, uh, he was down helping us film and document just some archival footage with um, a traditional weaver, a master weaver down in Louisiana, and he had shared a story with Ryan about how he wanted to do kind of a personal project, and he was talking about how he had read an article about the Mississippi Choctaw and Ryan said, wait a second, that's the article Deanna wrote. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of this weird twist of fate, how we met. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do is, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing to find the building. It's one thing to know, you know, in the historic preservation department, you've done this 
Center to be wrote an article, but really we wanted to celebrate the families and the stories and the descendants of um, the story. And so working with Mark, he's really great at working in the community. He doesn't push, he just kind of lets things evolve. And before you know it, um, elders and community members are just talking to him and telling him all kinds of stuff. And we really wanted to celebrate the contributions of these families. And so the clothing, the dance, the songs, um, you know, to working with the descendants, telling their stories. And, um, you know, really commemorating that journey, but then also, you know, we got to meet um, the descendants of the survivors, and yeah, it was it was a pretty powerful. I um, bet. Film to make, you know, with all of these people together who were honoring their ancestors and sharing their story and sharing the survival, and and showing that there are descendants of these survivors. It all accumulated into this story you wanted to put out there for everyone. And what was that called? It was called Ikiana Lachi, I will remember. And what's special about this is that we really wanted to bring it back to a collective memory um, where everyone understood that this was part of our history, our collective history, um, our trail of tears, our removal history. And what's interesting is that after I wrote the article initially just talking about the story, there was people coming out of the woodwork. There was elders coming up and saying, oh, yeah, I remember that. I saw that in the paper. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, I was like, wait a second. Where were you when I was researching? Right. You know? I was like, oh, man, I wish I would have met you then. Um, but it was interesting because there were so many individuals that really, really were looking for this piece of information. Um, and I remember being in an Ardmore community meeting and we had set up just a little booth and we were telling people about, you know, potential um, of a documentary and just kind of trying to gather stories and, and trying to get names for contacts of potential interviews. And we also had information about the story. And I always remember this one tribal member and she just stops in her tracks and she's got a couple girlfriends with her. And she's like, see, I told you, I told you, just look, look. And she was so excited. And they were just, you know, of course, rolling their eyes and like, Oh, sure. Yeah. And, but she was just so happy because Aww. she finally had all of that information and she took my business card and we chatted and we talked and, you know, I think it really was a way to um, celebrate um, and get the story out there, but then also honor those descendants um, and their family's contribution to Choctaw culture. Absolutely. And what a beautiful documentary it is. Um, I'll be sure to post the link to Ikeana Lachi, which means I will remember on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. Listeners, please help us honor the memories of these people who went through so much by just simply watching this powerful documentary where you'll hear their story and you'll meet the descendants of the survivors. Deanna and I personally invite you to watch and to be inspired. Now, your daughters were actually a part of this production too, right? Yes, my eldest daughter, Max, um, Camlin Compierre, um, what and I got together. Near the end of this film, um, one of the things that we really wanted to portray was the actual story. Um, however, you know, we just didn't like having just a historian on there talking about the dark history. And so we really played with it about how you can tell dark history through something gentle like art. And 
myself being an artist as an illustrator and then um, Max being a graphic design and um, working with animation in the past was like, hey, why don't we do this? And so we pitched it to Mark and Mark loved the idea. And we had like six short weeks to get it together. And so we did what a whole production crew would do at like an animation studio in six short weeks. And so um, we got it together. And and I think it was was really effective to not dive too deep um, into the dark history. But we wanted to be able to have that background there, um, tell the story. And then in the documentary, you'll notice that there is a very clear turning of a page. Mm-hmm. And that turning of the page is us concentrating on the survivors. Amazing. I love that. Again, that's that Choctaw spirit that lives on. And we have even more really interesting parts of the story to share. But first, I'd like to take a moment to learn more about NAGPRA. According to the journal record in December of 2020, for 30 years, a federal law known as the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act has aimed to protect Native American remains and sacred objects. But Oklahoma's tribes have unique challenges that go beyond fighting for the return of bones and artifacts. Tell us more about NAGPRA. Yes, yeah, so NAGPRA was enacted in 1990. It allows us to have a conversation with museums, institutions, federal repositories, essentially, about those that are carrying for collections that have our ancestors um, that were um, essentially excavated um, without tribal consent. And um, we can have conversations that lead to their return um, so that we can help them find peace and we bury them in their funerary items. It must feel good to do that work every day. I think it's um, it's one of those where it's, it's, uh, it's bittersweet. I, yeah. I think that the hardest part for me is knowing that it's a, uh, I had a good friend, you know, being a researcher, you know, um, doing the research on the documentary and, and being, you know, going to grad school and doing research, you know, I was, I'm pretty dedicated to the research process. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this methodically and I'm going to have all of our ancestors back in like a year. That's it. It's just going to take me a year. This is going to happen. We're going to go through the whole United States. This is going to happen. Right. Yeah, and um, I had a friend tell me, you know, this is multi-generational work, and that just took a little while to sink in, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I just, I really hope that I'm able to do a dent in my lifetime so that our children don't have to to, to do as much. Um, and so we, we decided to um, d- basically search the United States institution by institution, and we're down to about six states, five or six states left. And we're going through, we're entering into our second wave. So those that didn't answer the first time, we're going back and um, being a little bit more um, persistent. But what's interesting is that in this, just in this, you know, maybe four years that the project has been going, now that we're going back, there's now a NAG per person to talk to. There's now a NAG per program that they instituted at the institution. So a lot has happened and is exciting to learn that, um, that these individuals are meeting us, you know, halfway, more than halfway, and are willing with big, compassionate hearts to do the right thing and have these big conversations about the return of our ancestors. And so while it's bitter, you know, that the work is is a lot and it's daunting, um, it's also sweet because there's wonderful people that we meet and work with. Um, I would say, you know, 95% of the individuals I encounter are just really amazing human beings and it feels nice to be able to to 
help those ancestors find peace. Oh, absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you for all you do there. We really appreciate it. We've heard a bit of your own family history along the way today. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your family story? Yeah, so I think that, you know, what's important for for my kind of family history um, and my, my journey to learn a little bit more about my family is understanding that there was a lot lost because my grandmother, you know, went to boarding school and um, she went to Carter Seminary, Carter Seminary there in Ardmore, um, but she never talked about it. And I know that there was a lot lost. Um, you know, she wasn't allowed to speak her language. Um, her younger sister went on to um, actually was taken home from the boarding school and she ended up staying and um, my, you know, her, her sister was able to retain her language and, and to live with um, relatives that she was able to maintain a little bit of the culture. And so you see that shift in the family um, where those, um, those individuals held on to a little bit more of the culture and the language. Whereas my grandmother going to boarding school, um, she never talked about it, but that was lost. And so I think for me, it was interesting, um, you know, knowing that there is consequences, knowing that there's that generational trauma that you have to address. And, um, but I was really thankful that my mom decided to pick up that torch. Um, she decided that she wanted to learn. Um, she wanted to embrace her culture and um, she started learning you know, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it sounds like, you know, there were these two sisters who both went through a lot, but one of them was able to keep their language and their culture a little more where the other was not. And it's an interesting story of that dynamic of what was happening at that time. So we honor your, your grandmother and, and her sister and thinking are thinking of them right now. And we really appreciate your sharing that story. So sometimes we hear from our ancestors or folks that are talking about the old days that things were just great. And what we've found over time is that we found a lot of tight-lipped relatives and ancestors because the ramifications back then were so horrible if they did talk. Or maybe they just don't want to tell those, those horrible stories that um, were going on at the time. Did you find that with your grandma as well? Yeah, so she she never talked to anybody about her experience there in boarding school. And I'm sure that my grandfather probably knew a little bit, but as far as her children and certainly her grandchildren um, and great grandchildren, we, we never knew. Um, and, you know, I think you kind of go to a point of, of just kind of acceptance that that happened. Um, and, you know, I've even heard people tell me, oh, well, that one wasn't that bad. You know, Carter Seminary, they actually treated the kids really good and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and talked about how great it was, you know, you know, worst happens today, I think people said. And, right. you know, it wasn't until I saw a woman um, and she was living in Oklahoma City at the time and she was an elder and she was talking on TV and they were interviewing her and, you know, was talking about boarding schools and um, her experience there and, she started talking about it. And of course I start welling up and then she starts saying, you know, where she was. And then she mentions Carter seminary and I just really broke down. You know, I think it was then that I realized that, you know, everything that, you know, she went through, she kept to herself. She kept so close to her heart. And, um, but that's how 
talks how women are. I think, you know, we were so strong that we keep that to ourselves and we kind of pull ourselves up and, you know, tell ourselves that we're strong and we keep going. And, you know, we have this resilient spirit and it's not sweeping it under the rug, but it's overcoming this and it's, um, it's uh, persevering, you know, and I think that that's a really essential part of our Taka spirit that we have so much strength. Absolutely. And it really makes me think of your grandmother so much. I can't imagine, you know, her keeping that to herself all of those years. And for her, that's the way she dealt with it. And we can't judge that, of course. But same thing with my great grandmother. Sometimes I think back, it's like, oh my gosh, you went through that. And I never knew. I just want to hold your hand or hug you or tell you, I'm so sorry you went through that. And it's too late now because she's gone. But, um, Mm -hmm. and I, I get, I get that tough exterior but also let's say strong exterior that so many have and I do appreciate it and hope to understand it better over time what would you like people to know when they're learning about their own family history and that of others I think it's um really looking at um those similarities you know I think that that's something that I've looked at is what I've persevered in my life you know how I've been strong um and um, you know, my children and I, you know, we're, we took my mom's lead about picking up those pieces and, and breaking cycles, um, learning, you know, from the past and, and healing, you know, that healing can go back, you know, many, many generations and many generations forward just by a single choice that you decide to do and to carry on. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think also being trauma informed. Um, I think sometimes people, you know, share things or talk about things, you know, really willy nilly, but you don't know what you're triggering in somebody. You don't know what they're really struggling with or what they're going through or what they've gone through and overcame. And so, you know, tread lightly and and be gentle with each other. Um, you know, don't just um, show up to a conversation without knowing our background and maybe some of the things that we're struggling with. Well said. Absolutely. I, I hear sometimes people that are close to me occasionally will say things like, ah, well, it, we've all moved on. It's fine now. Like, why are we still looking at the past? And it's like, it's not that we're sitting here staring at the past. It's that there are people who went through trauma and we're still feeling it, even if it was a story of our great grandmother, or um, we're trying to learn more about our own heritage and that of other people. And so it's a matter of just honoring and respecting and learning those histories and all of that. So I appreciate what you just said. It feels like the love building, even though it's not there anymore, seems to be a sort of metaphor, like a beautiful name representing the hope of something exciting, of a new frontier, an adventure, with the reality on the inside symbolizing centuries of broken promises. I think about the families in Mississippi who had to say goodbye to each other, those who stayed behind and those who left, leaving everything they knew and the homelands of their ancestors anticipating a hopeful future and already reluctantly putting trust in an attorney who promised to take care of that future. The short story I told in the beginning of this episode of the Choctaw, Mississippi throwing a going away party for their friends and loved ones, it was fictional, but it was based on a factual event. A paper in Mississippi wrote about one such party. Here are some excerpts from that article. Choctaws are going west. Party of 40 left Meridian yesterday. The Meridian Press prints the following interesting story. Without a single emotion, save an occasional leaving of the bosom or a tear glistening in 
beady eyes. A party of 40 Choctaw Indians stood at the Union Depot last night, awaiting the train which was to carry them to their new homes in Indian Territory. They spent yesterday in Meridian and attracted much attention. A great many will take advantage of this offer from the government, leave the land of their fathers, and spend the remainder of their lives amid the flowery prairies of the Great West. There was an old woman, bowed with age, her silvery hair falling in a mass over her drooping shoulders, her hands clasped on her breast as though asking the great spirit to watch and protect the remnant of the country and her kin. A glittering tear coursed its way down her rugged cheek as she gazed sorrowfully out into the darkness towards the land where sleep her ancestors now beneath the cotton fields of the pale face. An Indian girl stood silently near her, thinking perhaps of some dusky sweetheart left behind, and perhaps wondering with a little pang of pain if he would remain true, and sometime they might meet and fulfill the vows of love made beneath the whispering pines of Mississippi. There is much to mourn with today's story, but there is also much to celebrate and remember as we honor memories and recognize the descendants of the survivors. And as we look ahead... Deanna, you have some exciting news about the future of Native education and preservation. Do tell. Yes, I'd love to tell you about it. So it's a new project we started this year called the Choctaw History Literacy Project. And we are putting together all of the information that we've researched um, over the past 12 years and all of our Itifa bases and putting them into a family version um, with kids activities and stories so that our young ones, um, ages K through four, um, can learn about um, Choctaw history and Choctaw culture in these very formative years of their identity. Well, and I was wondering, will, will there be teachers out there like my aunts and cousins who teach today in Oklahoma, will they have an opportunity to see this curriculum and stuff, to see this curriculum in the future? I hope. I hope. That's our hope. So our hope is, is to be able to, um, we're in the first year of our pilot project, um, we have one more year. We want to make sure that the information is as accurate as possible. So we're working with cultural educators and traditional experts, um, historians, pretty much anybody that we can talk to. We're partnering with our language department and our cultural department to be able to make sure that all of the information is accurate. Eventually, we hope to have it in the hands of teachers. Right now, we're concentrating in the first two years with a pilot project. So we're rolling out um, little snippets of the curriculum uh, with students at select campuses so that we can better develop the education curriculum. Um, and then we first want to try it out on the families. Um, I want to try it out. Um, we first want to roll it out so that the tribal members have access to it first, and then we hope that it grows from there. Oh, that's so exciting. I love this. And it's something that Oklahoma definitely needs, and hopefully other states as well will follow suit because, again, it's much needed in our curriculums. So before we go, Deanna, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. So I encourage all of you that listen today and were interested in NAGPRA and learning a little bit more about it. Perhaps you find yourself in a museum or an institution with an archaeological collection that is of potential interest to tribes. Or maybe you're a individual who's going on to anthropology school. Um, perhaps you're a student who's going on to graduate school. Um, the NAGPRA Community of Practice is based out of Denver. Um, it was started with a grant by Anna Motti, and it has grown over the last three years to encompass over 100 individuals. 
um, that regularly attend our meetings. And so we meet twice a month. And so I encourage you to look them up and we'll put the link um, um, that we mentioned in the podcast here on the website. Um, so if there's anybody who would like to learn a little bit more, um, I encourage you to check that out. This sounds like such a wonderful thing going on and that you're a part of. It's super exciting. So I hope folks will go check us out again, as Deanna said, um, also on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. I'll put pr plenty of resources and links for y'all to check out. This has been a an emotional yet inspiring day talking to you through all of this and learning more and honoring our ancestors. So Yakuki for your words of wisdom and your expertise and really for just researching this important story and sharing it um, to all of us. So God bless. Yakuki, thank you for having me. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutler Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Thanks for listening to Native Choctaw. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.